Section 18 of the Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. The Carolingians, Successors of Charles, Part 2. Speaking roughly, we may say that by the Treaty of Verdun in 843, and by the confirmation of it at Thionville in 844 and Mirzon in 847, Louis the German took the Eastern and German Franks, and Charles the Bald the Western and Latinized Franks. Lothar, besides the imperial dignity and whatever claims went with it, had the middle portion of the Frank kingdom, between the Rhine eastwards, the Scheldt, Meuse, and Rhone westwards, with Italy the emperor's special share. The realm of Lothar the emperor was, says Palgrave, built upon Italy. The two imperial residences, Rome and Aachen, the centres of the two great Cisalpine and Transalpine crownlands, were conjoined by an unbroken and continuous territory, including all varieties of soil, climate, and production, the wine and oil of the south, the harvests and pastures of the north. Once and once only, again after the disruption of Verdun, the three realms were for a short time under one emperor, Charles the Fat, 884 to 887. But his hand was too feeble to hold them. The inherent tendencies to separate national life were irresistible. The new world grew too fast and became too large for any constitutional authority of those days to manage, and for anything but the rarest personal qualities to keep together. Charles the Great's design was more than once attempted, but was never again accomplished. The history of modern Europe, says Sir F. Palgrave, is an exposition of the Treaty of Verdun. With the breaking up of the West into these great national divisions, occasioned by the family feuds of the Carolingians, the interest of their history is extinguished. For a time they continued at the head of these divisions. They gave their names to some of them. We hear of Carlingia, and a more enduring Lotharingia, now narrowed down to Lothringen or Lorraine. Each member of the family was forever endeavoring for his own advantage to undo the partition of Verdun, in whole or in part. But to this their efforts were confined, the political and administrative aims of the founders of their house, of Pippin and Charles, disappear. The legislative record, the capitularies, so full under Charles the Great and Louis the Pious, thins out with a few important documents under Charles the Bald, and after him comes to an end, leaving less trace than the legislation of the later Merovingians. Their history becomes a dizzy and unintelligible spectacle of monotonous confusion, a scene of unrestrained treachery, of insatiable and blind rapacity. No son is obedient or loyal to his father. No brother can trust his brother. No uncle spares his nephews. Members of the same family, their greedy envy of each other's possessions, kept them in an unvarying round of attempts at unscrupulous spoliation, successful or unsuccessful. There were rapid alternations of fortune, rapid changing of sides, 
There was universal distrust and universal reliance on falsehood and crime. But nothing, not even the barbarians of the north and east, desolating their cities and provinces, could interrupt the infatuated passion to overreach and encroach. While the Northmen were piercing to the heart of Neustria by the Seine, the Loire, and the Garonne, Charles the Bald, unable with his utmost efforts to check them, never could resist the temptation when it offered to filch a province from a neighboring kinsman, and he in like manner, when his hands were full, became the natural victim of their greediness. Yet the men themselves, some of them at least, such as Louis the German and even Charles the Bald, were of a higher stamp than the Merovingians, and to the last we find among them men of spirit and vigor, capable of striking a heavy blow and winning a success over a powerful opponent. But their energy was fitful and ill-applied. They had lost sight of all high aims and large purposes. The times were against them, and were too strong for them, and there were too many of them. Their rival pretensions were extravagant and irreconcilable. The dream of reuniting their great ancestors' empire was ever before their eyes, and their capacity never reached to this. They were but able to balance and check one another, and thus their history became a repetition of the disorder and dislocations of the Merovingian times. Pretenders struck in, carving out new kingdoms or dukedoms from the older divisions. The imperial, and then the kingly title, and at last the family itself, dies out in one line after another, first in that of the Emperor Lothar, Louis II, who died in 875, next in that of Louis the German, Louis the Child, who died in 911, and last in that of Charles the Bald, Louis the Lazy, who died in 987. And each line ends in some feeble representative who passes away unhonored, perhaps deposed and imprisoned. The family more numerous than the Merovingians confined themselves, like the Merovingians, to but few names. In the house of Clovis, almost every one was a Clovis, a Clotar, a Theodoric, a Childebert, a Chilperic, a Zigibert, or Dagobert. In the house of Pippin, almost every one was a Pippin, or Charles, or Carloman, or with the altered or modernized forms of the older names, a Ludwig, Louis, or a Lothar. But after the glory of their founder had departed, history can only distinguish them at last by some scornful nickname, Charles the Fat, Charles the Simple, Louis the Stammerer, Louis the Child, Louis the Lazy, the Do-Nothing. Of the three sons who survived Louis the Pious, Lothar the Emperor died first in 855, and his family was extinguished within the twenty years that his two brothers outlived him. His kingdom was divided between three sons, Louis II, the emperor, Lothar, and Charles. The three brothers quarreled among themselves and were assailed by their uncles. They all died without male heirs, the elder, the emperor, Louis II, being the survivor. And at each death, whether of brothers or nephews, and whether children were left or not, the moment was seized by the others to snatch or divide the vacant share which usually had been contested in life. The middle portion of the Frank dominion, 
to the northern part of which, along the course of the Meuse and the Moselle, as far as the Scheldt, the second Lothar gave the name of Lotharingia. That middle kingdom which the great Charles supposed could arbitrate between east and west, and the idea of which, after repeated vain attempts, was revived again in vain in the fifteenth century by the French house of Burgundy, was immediately on Lothar's death torn in two by his uncles Louis the German and Charles the Bald in 870. At the death of Louis II, the emperor in 875, Charles the Bald succeeded in anticipating Louis the German and seized what was specially the imperial portion, Italy, gaining from Pope John VIII the imperial crown in 875, which he received like his great namesake on Christmas Day at St. Peter's. But he wore it only for a short time. Three successive years, 875 to 877, saw the extinction of the line of the first Lothar and the death of his two brothers Louis in 876 and Charles in 877. One of the main lines of the Carolingian stock was gone, two were left. The house of Louis the German, who is said to have been the wisest and most just of the brothers, ruled at last over all the German lands to the eastward of an irregular boundary line drawn from the mouth of the Scheldt to the Jura. According to the custom of his race, he had to encounter the rebellions of his three sons, who had been invested with the government of different parts of his kingdom. But he was able to hold his own against them. The survivor of them, Charles the Fat, for a moment raised the hopes of his subjects. For a brief interval he was emperor, and united under his rule all the realms of Charles the Great. But the promise of reviving power was a treacherous one. Health and vigor gave way before the difficulties of the times and the intrigues of the younger kinsmen. Eleven years after his father's death, he was deposed in 887, and he died in prison in the monastery of Reichenau, in an island of the Lake of Constance in 888. The line of Louis the German was continued only by an illegitimate nephew, Arnulf, Duke of Carinthia, who took from his uncle Charles both the kingdom of Germany and the imperial dignity, and it finally died out in Arnulf's feeble son, Louis the Child, 899-911. Thus, within a century from the death of Charles the Great, one main branch alone survived of his house, the line of Charles the Bald, among the western Franks in Gaul. It dragged out a longer existence, but with no greater glory than the two which had failed. Charles, his father's youngest son and favorite son by his second marriage with the ambitious Welf princess Judith, was early taught not to trust even his brothers. He had to win his way through great difficulties to the kingdom which at last he secured. He was not without some of his famous namesake's gifts. He inherited Charles's literary tastes, perhaps some of his ideas of law and government. But all high political aims were subordinated to his restless and unscrupulous eagerness to enlarge his borders. While he could not save them from the ravages of the Northmen, his reign was spent in trying to add to dominions which he could not govern. Like Charles the Fat after him, he seemed for a moment to have succeeded, only to prove the impossibility of success. For two years he bore, 875, 
to 877, amid humiliation and disaster, the coveted name of emperor. But he left no stronger or more fortunate posterity than his brothers. His son, Louis the Stammerer, his successor in Gaul, died two years after him in 879. The two elder sons of this Louis saw their western realm broken up and the new kingdom created in Burgundy and Provence in 879 by a stranger, Boso, who had married a Carolingian princess. They both of them passed away amid disaster and ill-fortune. Within seven years from their grandfather's death, the kingdom of the West Franks was for a moment transferred to the German, Charles the Fat, and after his death, the claims of their younger brother, the posthumous son of Louis the Stammerer, Charles, named the Simple, were set aside by a powerful party among the Franks in favor of a new man. This was the deliverer of Paris from the Northmen, Count Odo, or Eudes, the son of a warrior of unknown origin, Robert the Strong, the ancestor of the line of Capet. On the death of Odo, Charles was again acknowledged in 899, but the allegiance of the Franks to the Carolingian house was shaken and the family and realm of Charles the Bald had to bear the brunt of the great revolution in Western Europe, caused by the intrusion of a new barbarian element into the civilization of Charles the Great. The date of the Treaty of Verdun, 843, marks also the beginning of a series of events, only second in importance to the empire of Charles the Great, and of lasting influence not only on the history of Gaul and the Franks, but on the history of Europe and the world. This was the second stage of barbarian invasions, the assaults and settlements of the Norsemen, or, as we call them in England, the Danes, which were coincident with the break-up of Charles's empire. They were not the only barbarian invasions of the time. On the Mediterranean coasts, the Saracens were and long continued to be threatening and sometimes dangerous. On the eastern border, the heathen Saxons, the more numerous Slav tribes, with some tribes of the Turanian or Turkish stock, had long been formidable. The great military achievement of Charles the Great had been to subdue them. The German tribes had been more or less Christianized and assimilated to their more civilized Frank brethren. The Slavs long continued to be refractory and troublesome, and the eruptions of the Tartar Magyars or Hungarians brought back the terror of Attila's Huns, even in the heart of Gaul and Italy. But the eastern barbarians, though causing terrible misery and loss, and long defying the efforts of the Carolingian kings to bridle them, never accomplished a settlement in the west. They were kept within their own borders, and the vast plains north and south of the Danube were finally occupied, by the Hungarian and Slav populations, which were definitely to inherit them. End of section 18